Welcome to Her Story Sessions. I'm Brittany, a woman on a mission to learn more about women throughout history and to share it all with you. If you like this show, be sure to follow me. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Her Story Session and can be emailed at herstorysessionspodcast at gmail.com. This week, I'm again returning to a topic I've already covered to do a part two. That would be the topic of pirates. Part one was way back at episode seven, so if you want to hear more about Saida Ahura, Grace O'Malley, Anne Bonnie, and Mary Reed, and Ching Shi, be sure to go back to that episode. The book Sea Queens, Women Pirates Around the World by Jane Yolen was the inspiration and a source for this episode. O come list a while and you shall hear, by rolling sea lived a maiden fair. Her father had followed the smuggling trade, like a warlike hero, like a warlike hero that never was afraid. Now in sailor's clothing, young Jane did go, dressed like a sailor from top to toe. Her aged father was only care of this female smuggler, of this female smuggler who never did despair. With her pistols loaded, she went aboard, and by her side hung a glittering sword, and in her belt two daggers, while armed for war, was this female smuggler, was this female smuggler, who never feared a scar. Now they had not sailed far from land when a strange sail brought them to a stand. These are sea robbers, this maid did cry, but the female smuggler, but the female smuggler will conquer or will die. Alongside then the strange vessel came. Cheer up, cried Jane, we will board the same. We'll run all chances to rise or fall, cried this female smuggler, cried this female smuggler who never feared a ball. Now they killed those pirates and took their store and soon returned to old England ashore. With a keg of brandy she walked along, did this female smuggler, did this female smuggler, and sweetly sang a song. That is the first part of a ballad collected by Reverend S. Baring Gould, sometimes sung as a female pirate or the female buccaneer. It talks of a woman disguising herself in men's clothing to join a pirate crew, and the rest of the story in it goes on to the pirates being captured and her identity being revealed. The commodore that she had fought while dressed as a man was surprised and proclaims that he cannot prosecute her and begs for a pardon for, quote, this female smuggler was so valiant and brave. He then takes her back to her father and asks for her hand and the two are married. As I mentioned last time, most, but not all, women that became pirates disguised themselves as men to do so. But I didn't really go into that much, so I wanted to delve a little deeper into that before we get into our sea queens today, and two of the three were, in fact, royalty. Over the centuries, and in different regions, they would simply dress in men's clothing, as the fashions were distinctly different, and anyone seen wearing men's clothing was assumed to be a man. In the golden age of piracy during the 17th century, which is what we usually think of when we think of pirates, Men's clothing consisted of loose-fitting tunics under a jacket and baggy pleated pants called petticoat breeches. These clothes made it easier to hide any curves, and binding their chest also helped. But living quarters were pretty close, so they had to be careful. Since most sailors didn't ever remove all of their clothing all at once unless injured, that was easy. Anyone injured may have been found out by the doctors treating them, but if it was in the middle of a battle, it is likely that the doctor didn't bother to care at the moment, or have time to call attention to whether their patient was male or female. When it came to bathroom breaks, there was no privacy there either. Some women would have small tubes affixed inside their pants to make it seem like they could urinate standing up. And when it came to their periods, the amount of physical labor and their poor diets meant that they often would stop or become less regular at least. 
But even if they did have one, as venereal diseases that could cause bleeding ran rampant among the male sailors, they wouldn't have thought much of it. And when it came to them never shaving, it was assumed they were young and just hadn't gone through puberty yet. Most sailors also wore their hair long and tied back, so this wasn't really an issue for them either. That's not to say that this always worked. Sometimes they were found out or never bothered to hide in the first place, and, disguised or not, these women were as ruthless and cutthroat as their male counterparts. It was a tough, high-risk career choice. But as Robert I. Naismith wrote in the foreword of Pirates of the Spanish Main, Cruel they undoubtedly were, and relatively few of them received the hempen halter they deserved. But their crimes should be remembered as taking place in a cruel age, when even children might be hanged for stealing less than a dollar's worth of goods. Nor should it be forgotten that most pirates had either fled from the widespread miseries of poverty or had been recruited as deserters from the armies and navies of Europe. Even though many came from poor backgrounds, even queens became pirates. Queen Tueta, back around 230 BCE, was one of them. She was the second wife of King Agron, who had established the first kingdom of Illyria, which is now a modern-day Albania, Montenegro, and Bosnia. When he died of pneumonia, she became regent for her stepson, Pinius. Her very first decision was to grant her ships the right to plunder along the coast, and they came home with so many goods that she sent them off again, this time into the Ionian Sea and west to the Italian coast, to attack Roman ships, which would turn out to be a mistake. Every time they returned laden down with goods, she would reward them. She sometimes went along with them and soon became known as the Terror of the Adriatic. Understandably, the Romans were not happy with this and sent ambassadors to her to demand an end to piracy. But according to Illyrian law, it was a legal trade and it had been too successful to give up. On top of that, one of the ambassadors was disrespectful to Queen Tueta, enough so that she had him killed on the way home. Snubbing a powerful empire that had until then left her kingdom alone and then killing their envoy were not smart moves. Rome retaliated by declaring war, and for the first time, Roman armies crossed the Adriatic Sea in 229 BCE and invaded. They had a fleet of 200 ships, and Queen Tueta's governor, Demetrius, could not stand up to them and was forced to surrender. The Roman army and navy took one town after another, ending with besieging the capital. After two years, in 227 BCE, Queen Tueta surrendered her kingdom. The Romans allowed her to remain regent of just a tiny portion of her original holdings, and she was forbidden from sailing any armed ships south of the capital. They also forced her to pay tribute yearly to Rome. And with that, her pirate reign was over, having lasted less than four years. Today, the remains of her palace and her governor Demetrius's fortress can be seen near Sukaraj in Albania. Our next pirate woman was also royalty, but much further north and many centuries later. Afield lived sometime in the 9th century in Denmark, if she really did exist. It is possible she really did, but her story has been somewhat embellished over time, so she now has become a mythological woman. But women really did go to sea in Denmark then, and Queen Odd led a navy against Iceland at one point. Alfred the Great's daughter, Æthelflæd was also a brilliant commander, both on land and at sea. So Afield's story could be the story of all seafaring women of her age. Afield's story says she was the daughter of Seward, king of the Goths, and she was so beautiful, but also modest, that she kept her face hidden in her robes so as not to stun the men around her. 
Her father wanted to keep her safe, so he gave her a viper to raise to be her guardian, and also warned that any man who tried to go into her chambers would be beheaded and his body impaled on a stake. During the Viking Age, men trying to kidnap rich potential brides as a way to take them as their own was actually a thing. So the king, being worried for his daughter this much, was based in their reality. The king also added, should someone get through to his daughter, it would be her, quote, free and decided choice of whether she married him. Norse women had the right to refuse a suitor, but in most of their sagas, the maiden would agree to the marriage when a man had risked his life for her. But Offield was not the usual maiden. Many princes tried and failed to get to Offield until Alf, son of Sigar, decided to attempt it. His strategy involved wearing a blood-stained hide, both as a layer of protection and to get the viper worked up. He also held a pair of tongs with a piece of red-hot steel gripped in them. When the viper went to attack him, he plunged the steel into the throat of the viper and killed it. He was then ready to claim his new bride. Or so he thought. She did not marry him. Instead, she changed into men's clothing and ran off to the sea. As Olas Magnus wrote, for she so much preferred a life of valor to one of ease that, when she might have enjoyed the pleasure of royalty, drawn by a woman's madness, she was suddenly plunged into the hazards of war. Her determination to stay chaste was so steadfast that she began to reject all men and firmly resolved with herself never to have intercourse with any, but from then on to equal or to even surpass male courage in the practice of piracy. Offield then recruited women to be her crew and soon found a boat. They came across a band of rovers, quote, lamenting the death of their captain. And Offield's beauty enraptured them so much that they gave her a command. And so began her pirate's life. She did so well, she ended up commanding a full fleet of ships, preying on so many in the Baltic Sea and on Danish land that the king sent his own ships to stop her. And none other than Prince Alf was put in charge of the king's ships. It took him quite a while to track her down, but he finally found her in the narrow Gulf of Finland. They fought, and Alf managed to seize several of her ships. But when he boarded the flagship, he struck down everyone in front of him. But then his lieutenant, Borgar, knocked off Alfield's helmet, and her beauty froze Alf in his tracks. Instead of fighting, he kissed her. He then took her for his wife, and they had a daughter named Girid. After this, she disappears from the record. This next woman took to the seas and pillaged as an act of revenge. She was Jean de Belleville from the region of Brittany, which is now part of France. Also known as Jean de Clisson or Jean de Montfort, she was a noblewoman in the countryside living a quiet life with her husband Oliver de Clisson and their children, had friends at court, and moved in elite social circles. In 1343, France and England were at war, and Brittany was in the middle of them. Someone at the French court accused her husband of siding with the English, and with no way to prove himself innocent, he was quickly imprisoned and then executed. His head was sent from Paris to Nantes, and it was displayed on the city wall. Devastated by the brutal loss of her husband, Jean vowed revenge against the French military, nobility, and King Philip VI himself. She sold off her castles, jewels, and lands, and used the money to man and equip three large ships. She had her fleet painted black and the sails all dyed red, which became known as her Black Fleet. She then set off along with her two teenage sons, attacking French vessels off the coast and killing everyone on board. She would also help the English forces when they were attacking France, using her ships to supply them during battles. She also attacked on land across the French countryside. 
She became known as the Lioness of Brittany, and it was said that she could often be seen standing on the ruins of a Normandy village, sword in one hand, torch in the other. She liked to capture the noble ships when the nobles were on board and would personally decapitate any of the high-valued prisoners herself with an axe. Occasionally, a few prisoners would be released so that they could go back and tell what happened. She pirated for 13 years, finally stopping in 1356, well after the death of King Philip, who had died six years earlier. Her flagship had been sunk, and Jean and her sons floated adrift for several days. Her son, Guillaume, died of exposure. She retired from the seas and married Sir Walter Bentley, an English military deputy. She eventually returned to Brittany, living in the castle of Hennebont along the coast. She lived there until her death in 1359. Well, those were some fierce women. I'd love to hear more about your favorite sea queen, so please feel free to reach out to me. If you liked this episode, please review it, heart it, give it a thumbs up, whatever your preferred platform does. And that's all for today. Thank you for attending this Her Story session. Mm-hmm.